Welcome to BizTalk. I'm your host, Jim Lobato. I'm president and founder of the Performance Group, which is a sales development company that works with presidents of growing companies who want a competitive advantage delivered by a superior sales force. On our program today is Jason Jennings, New York Times bestselling author and one of the most prolific business and leadership authors in the world. In his career, Jason was the youngest radio station group owner, and his legendary programming and sales strategies are credited with revolutionizing many parts of the broadcast industry. He is the founder of Jennings McLaughlin & Company, a consulting firm that became the nation's largest media consulting company. He traveled the globe in search of the world's fastest companies for his landmark book, It's Not the Big That Eat the Small, It's the Fast That Eat the Slow. Within weeks of its release, it hit the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and New York Times bestselling list, now published in 32 languages. USA Today named it one of the top 25 books of the year. He next went on to study 40,000 companies and identified the 10 most productive companies in the world in his bestseller, Less is More. The book reveals the secrets of the world's most productive companies. In his book, Think Big, Act Small, he profiles the leadership of the only 10 companies in the world to have grown both revenues and profits by double digits every year for 10 consecutive years. His latest book, Hit the Ground Running, A Manual for New Leaders, is what we're talking with Jason about on the program today. In reading this book, Hit the Ground Running, A Manual for New Leaders, I see that it is not just a manual for new leaders, as if someone is new to a job. So let's just start with that. Well, I think of it actually in a couple of contexts. Uh, One, I don't know that Hit the Ground Running is as much a manual for new leaders as in just beginning, uh, as it is for uh, a new kind of leader. And I guess I would add to that um, that there are new situations confronting everybody that leads. Uh, ground that has never been trodden on before. So in that respect, everybody is one, a new leader, uh, and it's my belief that these times, this um, near financial Armageddon, uh, calls for a new type of leader. And and when you, I noticed in the uh, preface in the book, you actually wrote that, I think it was in October of last year. So that was kind of the beginning of uh, some of the stuff. Well, it wasn't really the beginning, but when all the news is breaking of what's going on. So as you've gone out and talked about this book and you've talked about some of the leadership principles in here, what's the feedback you're getting from the audience on it? Uh, I can tell you exactly what it is. Uh, This week I was on the road with the uh, book tour, and I found myself at the Microsoft campus, and I found myself uh, with a huge crowd at the Boeing campus, um, uh, as well as out in America's Midwest in uh, Wichita uh, with a group of people from who are farmers and ranchers and, and run rural cooperatives. Uh, and, and I think what I'm hearing is the same. I think there's two beliefs. Um, one, so many of the people we thought were leaders, uh, who we looked to for answers, uh, whose faces were all over CNBC and all over the Wall Street Journal and Fortune and Forbes and Fox Business, well, it turns out uh, they said they had the answers, uh, but now it turns out they didn't. Uh, and the other thing I sense is a great deal of disappointment because there's no question that it was greed on the part of a few leaders uh, who were nearly responsible for bringing our entire economic system to the edge of a cliff. I I think there's a unanimity of feeling that it is time, truly time, for a new kind of leader. And when you started this um, project, which is uh, uh, three years ago, you must have had some sense that this must have been uh, a groundswell for this. And, of course, the timing 
as it appears to be with most of the books you've written here lately, the timing appears to be impeccable. So, well, I can't claim any credit for that. Uh, what happens is uh, every two years, I, I, I try very hard to have a new book every two years. This one took almost three to complete researching and writing. Uh, but every couple of years, I, I travel to New York. I sit down with my publisher, uh, Adrian Zackheim, who is renowned as the man who brought the world good to great and, uh, uh, and Tom Peters' first book, In Search of Excellence. I, I think he's the best in the country. And, and he spends a day with me, and he makes my head hurt. Uh, because he asked the question, uh, we don't have a crystal ball, he says, but let's try to look out a couple of years from now when the book will be coming out, and what are people going to be interested in? Are they going to be interested in speed? Are they going to be interested in productivity? Are they going to be interested in growth? Uh, what, what are they going to be interested in? And, and then we make a guess uh, as, as to what things could look like, and, and that really leads us to the topic that we're going to do. All right, so what's, give me the, uh, me and only that, uh, the audience here tonight, what's, what's the premise on the book then? Well, the premise of the book is simple. I, uh, for my last three books, I had written primarily about companies, and, uh, and personalities and people were secondary to the companies. Well, of course, duh, I should have had a B8, because I realized, after having spent time studying more than 100,000 companies, that companies are only people. They are the people who lead them, and they are the people who follow the leaders. Uh, and I determined that instead of singling out companies, I wanted to identify uh, the 10 CEOs who had created the greatest amount of economic value uh, from the year 2000 forward. Uh, I, didn't, I wasn't interested in old dinosaurs or old stories. I wasn't interested uh, in anything that happened before the dot-com meltdown. Uh, I, I truly wanted to find out what contemporary business leaders were doing in the here and now. And so we did handheld computations uh, on the 11,000 publicly traded companies in America. We identified those 10 companies that had created the greatest amount of economic value for their shareholders. And then we set about uh, getting gaining access to the CEOs. And I will tell you, um, and I'm trying to keep my response brief, but that was, that was the challenge. Uh, the challenge was gaining access, and that's why it took a little longer uh, for the research to be complete. But eventually, we gained access to every one of the CEOs. Yeah, and that's quite amazing because you talk in the book, too, about uh, the trouble you had breaking through the CEO of uh, Mohawk, Mohawk Industries. <laughs> and uh, so tell me, what was the initial, uh, I guess, hesitation, maybe other than their schedules of people to talk to you? Uh, I, you know, I don't know if it's the schedule. I think uh, one of the traits of all of these leaders is they are so authentically humble. And I think now, today, we have to use those words together because everybody is trying to claim a cloak of humility. Mm -hmm. And I think we've got to be very careful with that one. But, but first, I think these people are so authentically humble um, that they really didn't think there was anything to write about. Uh, I, I think the second thing is they are besieged by literally thousands of journalists wanting access. If they gave everybody access, uh, they wouldn't have any time. Uh, and then I think the third thing is the first no's really came from the corporate communications department, uh, because on one hand, uh, it's always a flower uh, to be told uh, that an author wants to write about your company, uh, but you don't know where it's going to go when an author wants to write about the CEO. Mm. And uh, we just kept chipping away over and over and over and used every tactic in the book uh, to get to them, and eventually we got to all of them. All right, so the top five discoveries you made – I mean, you had unique access, these 10 CEOs, 
You learned a lot. Top five discoveries were what? Uh, I think the first big discovery uh, coalesced or came together for me when the when the research was almost finished. I was sitting with Tim and Richard Smucker uh, at uh, at J.M. Smucker on one strawberry lane in little tiny Orville, Ohio. And one wouldn't think about this company as, as a company that hit the ground running. It's been around for 100 years. But the reality is, in the past eight years, they've gone from $500 million a year in revenues to $5 billion a year in revenues, and from leading one product category to leadership in eight cutthroat categories. And I looked at them and I said, uh, what's the single biggest reason for your success? And they said, well, it's because we truly follow the golden rule. And the other brother looked at me and said, uh, do you know the golden rule? And I said, well, of course. I went to the Lutheran Sunday School every Sunday of my life. I never missed, of course. I know the golden rule. And they said, well, what is it? And I said, well, the golden rule is, uh, as ye sow, so shall ye reap. And they said, well, that's part of it, but you're missing the most important word. And I said, well, no, that's, that's what they taught me in northern Michigan. They, they taught me, as ye sow, so shall ye reap. And they said, well, you're missing the most important words. And while they're not overtly religious there, there's not a Bible on every desk, one of them went off and searched for a Bible and came back and turned to Galatians and said, okay, read the golden rule. And I looked down, and I read the following words. Do not be deceived. God shall not be mocked. As ye sow, so shall ye reap. And all of a sudden, it came, uh, something big came together for me, and that was this, a trait shared in common by all of these CEOs. They all follow the golden rule, but none of them deceive themselves. And you, better than anybody else, know how many businesses deceive themselves about the adequacy of their products, about their customers, about their capitalization, about what they can do. They, they, they just deceive themselves. One of the traits shared by all these incredible CEOs is they don't waste any time deceiving themselves or mocking God. They understand that as ye sow, so shall ye reap in everything you do in your business. Interesting. I, I think that uh, we're going to get into that, too, after a break. So I want to dive in because that is the first rule in your book. And uh, when we come back from our break, the question I want to know is, why did that end up being the first rule? You may have answered that already, but don't deceive yourself. You will reap what you sow is the first rule in Jason Jennings' new book, which is titled Hit the Ground Running, a manual for new leaders. We're talking about um, the insight Jason's gained from uh, talking to the CEOs that he used to put this information together from the book. And the first rule in the book, there are 10 rules. The first one is don't deceive yourself. You will reap what you sow. That's what we're talking about before the break. You know, I find that interesting. Uh, my high school football coach who ran a very successful uh, football program, not only while I was there, but afterwards went on to be one of the winningest coaches in Division Three. always made a comment to us, don't read your press clippings. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I find it interesting uh, trying to remain humble. But in your observation, in your opinion, how did they do that? Uh, what? How, how did they stay humble? How did they stay humble? Well, well, no. Let's let's go this way. Uh, how did they not deceive themselves? I mean, you talk about Smuckers who went. You said what from fifty million to uh, five hundred million to five billion. Yeah, I mean that's got to mess with the ego a little bit. To thinking you're doing everything right. No, in fact, uh, I, I think the reason 
uh, Jim, that they were able to go from $500 million to $5 billion is precisely uh, because of the fact um, that they were humble. And, and I truly believe uh, that that is an accurate description of all of these people. I believe it is their humility. You know, humility, let's not confuse humility with wimpiness. Uh, that doesn't mean that these people don't have a clear idea of where they want to head. Uh, they do. And it doesn't mean that they don't act and think with a great degree of certainty once a course of action has been selected. But in business, there is a right way to do things. There's a wrong way to do things. Uh, we've seen a lot of the wrong way to do things uh, that have damaged us so greatly in the past uh, 12 months. Uh, but I think that all of these people take a great deal of comfort. Uh, one of the other CEOs of the books, uh, Howard Lance, who's the CEO of Harris Communications, uh, said, you know, when I was a young man, he said, I really thought it was all about achieving results. He said, I don't think that anymore. He said, I don't think it's about the achievement of the result. He said, I think it's about the way you go about achieving the result. Uh, I think all of these people are naturally humble, and because they're authentically humble, uh, I don't think they ran any risk at all uh, of being uh, of becoming taken with themselves. Okay. You also stated, too, that you, that, uh, you mentioned that uh, these people had a clear um, direction they wanted to go. Because you stated in your book that none of the CEOs that you studied in this book used the word vision, which seems to be the catchphrase of uh, recent yeah. years. <laughs> yeah. So if they weren't if they weren't talking to you or pointing to this plaque on the wall that had their vision written up on right. it, was it what did they use instead of the word vision? I guess we're not. Well, asking. yeah. Uh, I, I just I want to point out that if you go to a dictionary, the three preferred definitions for vision are, one, something supernaturally revealed to a prophet, something experienced in a trance, or something experienced whilst under the influence of a hallucinogenic substance. <laughs> uh, and the word vision has been so overused in the past decade that when you use it in front of people now, their eyes just roll backwards and they go, oh, here we go in the vision thing again. Um, well, it was not that these CEOs unilaterally knew where to go. It was after, uh, you had asked me earlier about the top Five points. Right. After they had gained belief and after they had asked for help and figured out where they were going to lead the company, then what they all did is they drove a stake in the ground and they said, here's who we are, here's what we do, here's why we're doing it, here's why it's good for people. Uh, as Pat Hasse, uh, the CEO of Allegheny Technologies, who took over this troubled specialty steelmaker, uh, when it was really on its way out the door, it could have gone bankrupt uh, very, very easily. Um, he, I remember him looking at me and saying, Jason, the leader's job is, is to be a travel agent. Uh, the leader's job is to be a destination agent. Uh, to After they've gained belief and after they've asked for help and figured out where they're going, to announce this is where we're going to go. And, uh, and this is why we're going to go there. And I'd like you to come there with me. Do you want to go? Okay, so just so our audience can catch up, you just went through the first five, six rules in your book. Recap real quick. Don't deceive yourself. You will reap what you sow. Number Rule number two, gain belief. Rule number three, ask for help. Number four, find, keep, and grow the right people. See through the fog is number five, and then drive a stake in the ground is number six. 
Yeah, could I tell you a quick little story about gaining belief? Because yeah, I think that's exactly where I was headed. All right, I think it's vitally important. Uh, I think of Fred Eppinger, uh, who took over the Hanover Insurance Companies uh, in Boston. Now, Hanover was for more than 100 years a storied player in the insurance industry, uh, huge property and casualty in life and annuities. Uh, a CEO died. They brought somebody in. He didn't work out. They replaced him with another CEO who tried to take the company from being an insurance company into only an annuity company. The dot-com bubble burst. I mean, their stock went down to nothing, nothing in reserves. They, they were, again, within weeks of being taken over by state regulators. Uh, enter Fred Eppinger. Uh, he was the last gasp candidate to being asked to save this. He wanted to get to work early the first day. And so he pulled up to this huge gray granite building in Worcester, Massachusetts, at 6 o'clock in the morning. The front doors were locked, and there was nobody in security there. So he went around to the side of the building, and it was locked. And he went around to the back of the building, and there was he saw a door open to the kitchen. And he walked into the kitchen, and there was a cook in the kitchen. And he said, hi, I, I'm trying to, I'm, it's my first day on the job, and I'm, I wanted to get in early. Do you mind if I come in this way? And she said, well, sure, I, I guess that's okay. And he said, uh, well, as long as I'm here, uh, I mean, would you mind giving me a cup of coffee? She said, well, fine, but who the hell are you? <laughs> and he said, well, I'm the new CEO. Well, apparently she almost dropped the carafe of coffee on the floor, and she exclaimed, I've been here 16 years, and we've never seen any of the big wigs down here in the cafeteria before. And he said, well, as long as I'm here and I'm going to have a cup of coffee, why don't you sit down and spend a half hour with me and tell me about the company? Well, you know very well, uh, Jim, how the tom-tom drums beat within an organization. Mm-hmm. And you know by noontime, the thousands of people in that company uh, had already heard that the new CEO had spent a half hour with Cookie in the kitchen having a cup of coffee and asking her about the company. Fred Eppinger understood that there was no way he was going to save this company and grow this company and make it something remarkable unless he first gained the belief of people. And, and getting people to believe, obviously, in, in the direction he thought the company could go. Well, and getting them to believe in him. His second action was when he went to his office, he walked in and he said, I'm not working here. It was filled with sofas and lounge chairs and there was a full bar in the corner. And he said, how can anybody believe they've got a good leader running the company? I mean, if, if the guy's sitting up here in the suite and he called downstairs to the building management people and he said, you know, when you get some time, would you mind emptying the office of this, of this bar and all of these sofas? And he said, I, you don't have to do it right away, but until you do it, could you just get me a little card table uh, and a lamp and I'll just work on my laptop up here in the reception area because, you know, I, I don't want to be around all of that stuff. I mean, again, how can, how can you be believed in an organization? If you're sitting up in this huge corner suite complete with a bar and, as he described it, ethereal lighting that made it look like a nightclub. And, and you go on to rule number three here, which is ask for help, which, again, I find interesting. You have these the sequence you put these in, which is don't deceive yourself. You will reap what you sow, gaining belief, and then asking for help because, again, it comes back to some of the leaders that we run into feel they have to have all the answers. So when you say asking for help, how did these CEOs ask for help, and, and who did they ask? Well, it's certainly in stark contrast to what we're taught in MBA school, mm-hmm. or certainly what we've been taught. The leader is supposed to be imperial and have all of the answers. All of these CEOs, again, the 10 best-performing CEOs in America during this century, uh, all agreed that what you have to do is ask for help. And, and I, I think back to Howard Lance, uh, who really gave me some good words for it. 
uh, who runs the Harris Corporation. Um, he was the first outsider hired in the com- uh, company's 100-year history, um, a, a very popular internal candidate, uh, had been uh, turned down for the job. The company, two-thirds of the workforce, is scientists and engineers who want stuff explained to them on a whiteboard, I mean, before they're going to believe anything. And uh, Howard Lance took the job. His first step was to go to each of the members of the board of directors individually and say, now look, as a board, you hired me and you set policy. I understand that. And the worst thing you could do is ever fire me. And if you want to do that, that's fine, because uh, we'll all survive. He said, but instead of just working for you, he said, you're all CEOs or you've been a CEO. He said, I want you to begin, become my teacher. I've never been a CEO before. I, I want to be able to ask you for help. Then he went to the top 200 people in the company and met with them individually in one-hour meetings and asked them, how do you think we're doing? Could we be doing better? What about our products? Could our products be better? What about our revenues? Could they be better? And then at the end of that meeting, he looked at them and said, well, you know, this, uh, this has always been a good company. But it's never been a great company. And he said, would you help me make this a truly great company? The only way to ask for help is to use those words, will you help me? And when you ask someone for their help, you're demonstrating your vulnerability. When they look at you and say, yes, I will help you, they're demonstrating their vulnerability, and you've got a blood brother pact that's just been built. And these CEOs, too, in in the history, and um, or maybe they're related to you, was there times that they even asked for outside help? Uh, yeah. I, they they ask their vendors and suppliers for help. They ask their workers for help. They ask their shareholders for help. Uh, they truly want to be able to pick the best destination. Uh, you know, what, one of the things I remember sitting uh, at the J.M. Smucker Company with Tim and Richard Smucker, and, you know, cost-cutting has been in the news recently, and companies trying to cut out waste and slash mm-hmm. expenses. Well, one of the things that happens then in most companies who are very short-sighted is they spend all of their time beating up their vendors and suppliers. You know, you got to help me. you got to lower the price. No, 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 no. you got to help me. I mean, you got to take some money off of that. Tim and Richard Smucker said, you know, that's really stupid. They said, we really want to run a profitable company here, but we need our vendors and suppliers to be just as profitable as we are, or one day they're not going to be in business anymore, and they're not going to be there to help us when we need their help. Uh, yes, they bucked conventional wisdom, and all of these CEOs even asked their vendors and suppliers for help and try to turn their vendors and suppliers into partners to try to achieve the destination. Okay, we've already talked about rule number six, which is drive a stake in the ground and simplify everything. Is something that the performance group uh, the company I run, that seems to be our motto. So I'm, I'm curious uh, to the insight you gain from these CEOs on making that to rule number seven about simplifying everything. You mean everything? I mean everything. And this was just brought home to me a couple of weeks ago. Again, the importance of this. Uh, I was in Chicago giving a speech to a bunch of venture capitalists. And at the end of the meeting, one of them said, uh, would you be willing to spend a, uh, just a few minutes with uh, myself and my partner in the lobby because we want to tell you about our new venture and what we're trying to do, and uh, we'd like some of your thoughts on it? And I said, fine. And so I, I sat down with them. I spent a half hour with them. And at the end of a half hour, I had no idea what the business was. I had no idea what they were trying to do. I had no idea 
how they were going to monetize it. I had no idea how, how they were going to be profitable from doing it. I didn't have a clue as to what they were doing. Each of these CEOs come in, number one, very ruthlessly, in words that could be understood by a six-year-old, are able to say, here's who we are, and here's what we do, and here's where we're going. Uh, but just ruthlessly, the value proposition for every one of these businesses is ruthlessly simple, and they keep it just that simple. And, and then they constantly are going throughout the organization, and they challenge yesterday's breadwinners. Uh, they challenge ego. They challenge same old, same old. They understand that everything must be simplified all the time. And unfortunately, uh, you know, I've studied 120,000 businesses uh, for these books, and unfortunately, most companies have delusions of adequacy, and um, and that's because they've allowed things to become uh, extraordinarily complicated in their business. Business is essentially very simple: create something of value that that is that represents authentic value, and because the marketplace is ultimately fair, you will be rewarded for the creation of authentic value. It is really that simple. That simple. Okay, and um, we come back from our break here. We're going to get into a little bit of your own experience uh, starting and running and developing your own companies. Before we do that, the other rule that stuck out at me that is just so important today, and I wanted your insight on it before we go to break, was rule number nine, cultivate a fierce sense of urgency. And, again, how did these CEOs do that? And, and your insight on why that's so vital today or well, just so uh, vital in general? I, I think of Keith Reddy, uh, the CEO of Questar, uh, a natural gas exploration and production company. And he said, it is the job of the person at the top of the organization to cultivate a fierce sense of urgency, and it's the single most important thing they do for one of two reasons. And I hope your listeners will, will listen up very carefully. The reason you must approach what you do, everything urgently, is either because, number one, you're not getting the result you want. Therefore, you've got to fix it as fast as you possibly can for the betterment of everybody, for the betterment of yourself, for the better, betterment of your workers, for the betterment of your customers, for the betterment of your shareholder, for the better, betterment of your bankers. So if it's not working, you have to have a fierce sense of urgency to fix it. And if it's going well, he says, the only promise I can make you is all of a sudden you're going to be dealt a huge mammoth change, and everything's going to be changed. And the one day you thought you were doing well, and the next day you're at the bottom of the heap. Yep. And he said, so we must be fiercely urgent either to fix it or to constantly make it better. Jason, you're not new to business. You've been in a few of these recessions. You've owned, operated uh, several businesses during downturns. What's the one thing you've learned from the past recessions that our leaders of companies should know today? Well, um, um, I, I, need to, I need to begin by saying this because I may not have another opportunity. Uh, growing up as a kid in the Midwest uh, who snuggled into bed every night with his transistor radio, uh, WHO, that flamethrower from Des Moines, was a station I listened to all the time. Uh, Jim, it's really a great honor to be with you on WHO. Now, let me answer your question. Um, during the last recession, uh, 
which occurred at the beginning of uh, the senior Bush's administration. Uh, I don't remember going through it. Uh, during the big recession uh, between 1981 and 82, uh, I can honestly tell you, I don't remember going through it. Now, that is either because I was young, and when you're young, you have so much time and so many things are possible that you just don't cut up in it. Uh, now, I will tell you, I feel this one only because I'm now in my early 50s and have seen 30% of my net worth evaporate in the retirement accounts over the past six months, the same as everyone else. And so to that extent, I feel this one. But as I told you, I was on the road last week and uh, covering lots of cities. Uh, young people don't really seem to be feeling or acknowledging uh, this recession. I'm starting, I'm starting to wonder. About six weeks ago, I said, I think I'm just going to stop reading the Wall Street Journal uh, and I think I'm going to stop watching business television. Uh, because, and I, I can tell you exactly when I decided that. It was uh, when CNN, in the month of January, when layoffs were being announced, you know how CNN has that little ticker down in the bottom of the, uh, the right-hand corner of the screen, yep. which shows you the stock market? Well, they changed it that day. And for about a week, every time a new layoff was announced, um, they were adding up jobs that had been lost. And one day I said, you know, I just, I, I, I don't need to own this. I, I, I because... It will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. If all we talk about is that everything is going to hell in a handbasket, guess what? It's going to become an eventuality. And so I'm not buying into it. Uh, you know, a recession is several quarters of a downturn in economic activity. A depression is several quarters. The technical definition is several quarters of a downturn in economic activity accompanied by a general feeling of malaise. Well, guess what? I'm not going to be one of those people who buy into the malaise. Uh, my job is to keep other people from feeling that malaise as well. And uh, um, it, it's so trite. I mean, uh, but when you look at a glass, consider the glass we're looking at right now. I'm not talking about the glass is half full as opposed to half empty. I mean, the glass right now, in terms of economic employment in the country, is, is 93% filled. I would rather talk about the 93% who are working uh, than the 7 or 7.5% who are not. In terms of economic activity, retail sales, the glass is overflowing. It was up one-tenth of a percent uh, last month again, as it was up the previous month. I don't believe things are that bad. And I think that there are incredible opportunities out there, and I've always believed that, and that's what got me through every one of them. You've been listening to BizTalk. If you'd like to contact the Performance Group, call 800-550-9509. If you'd like to hear more podcasts, go out to biztalkradioshow.com. That's B-I-Z, talkradioshow.com, and you can click on the downloads to hear more of these podcasts.